This is the ARC Energy Ideas Podcast with Peter Terzakian and Jackie Forrest, exploring trends that influence the energy business. Welcome, I'm Jackie Forrest, and this is the podcast for November 2nd, 2018. And I'm Peter Terzakian. So Jackie, today we are talking about the exciting subject of costs. That's right. Oil and gas innovation and what it's done for costs in the past, the present, and what's the future. Okay, great. So tell us about the past. The past. Well, we'll start with North American shale gas, which is really where I think a lot of innovation and recent innovation in the oil and gas industry started. And it was basically around 2007 when the combination of horizontal drilling and fracking allowed the U.S. producers to have success unlocking gas from these tight shale rocks where they knew the hydrocarbons were there, but they just wouldn't flow to the surface. And a few years later, that technology came to Canada, and it was really revolutionary. Yeah, it really was. I mean, I have to laugh a little bit because actually the whole notion of hydraulic fracturing, which is what really created the shale gas revolution, is nothing new. I mean, they used to fracture the rocks in the late 1800s, and fracking was merely dropping a tube of nitroglycerin down a well and running (laughs) And it would explode at the bottom of the hole, which was not all that deep. And it would basically get the uh, hydrocarbons oil dominantly flowing to the surface. And that really was a means of uh, increasing productivity, which is what we are seeing today. In fact, the productivity has increased so much that if you treat shale gas as a separate product set, it has displaced what we call legacy gas by 60% in 10 short years. That's right. And and today, the U.S. gas production is about 60% higher than it was back in 2007. So yeah. not only have we displaced a lot of the legacy production, but we're producing way more gas in yeah. North America yeah. uh, than we have. Now, in Canada, we also have adopted this technology. And today, about 75% of all of our production is coming from yeah. these types of wells. But our top line hasn't grown, mainly because we're trying to sell into a market where the Americans are producing a lot of gas. But still, it's caused a major change in our industry it's here It's a Canada major change. Well. And I would argue that this is a true transition in the business of energy. Like the shale gas transition has just been absolutely remarkable in North America. Transition meaning that a new entrant, a new product class comes in and displaces and effectively puts out of business the old product class. So shale gas coming in, putting old legacy gas out of business. It's been remarkable. In the same time period as we have seen the iPhone 1 emerge, which was you know 10 years ago, we have seen a completely new modality of natural gas come to market and take 60% market share. Right. And uh, you think about the oil and gas industry, you think that, well, that's an old industry. Well, you're right. The innovation that's happened in, since the time of the iPhone has totally turned the industry upside down. And it didn't just stop at natural gas. It's done a lot in terms of liquids production as well. Today, we're producing about twice as many NGLs, which are a byproduct of the gas, which is like the light liquids. And also, it came to the crude oil. People basically said, hey, if that worked in shale gas, maybe we should try it. We know there are reservoirs that have oil that are also very tight and not flowing. Let's try it. Well, it started in North Dakota and the rest is history. It moved to the Eagleford, Scoopstack, Permian, and not as well recognized, but it's also moved into Canada. And we have a lot of plays in Canada where these technologies are being used and we're getting very high oil rates and very economic wells. In some too. cases, just as high as we're seeing in the United States, I mean, some of the initial productions. That's right. You know, we have wells in Canada with initial production rates in the same range as what you're seeing in the famous 
access plays like the Permian and the Eagleford. And today, you know, close to 7 million barrels a day of U.S. crude oil is coming from these types of wells. Can you imagine now the U.S. is only producing about 11 million barrels a day of total crude production. So can you imagine what the oil markets would look like if this technology hadn't come along, you know, where the price of oil might be? Oh, see, I mean, with the combination of geopolitical events that are happening in Saudi Arabia and the demise of Venezuela and Mexico, if we didn't have what has happened in North America, the, the price of oil would easily be $100 plus today. But uh, it's struggling to sort of keep up to 80 right now, isn't it? Right. Well, let's talk about the price. So it's interesting that, you know, a lot of this innovation kind of started and, and it got going while we still had $100 oil. But when the price went to $50, the innovation didn't stop. We actually saw, I think, an accelerated rate of innovation. And we can see that through some of the data that gets put out. For example, the U.S. Energy Administration puts out these things called productivity indexes that measure the amount of oil that comes from one drilling rig in the field, and they can do it for gas as well, the first month of production that comes from the efforts of that rig in in one month. And basically what we're seeing since 2014 in U.S. oil plays, the amount of oil coming out of the efforts of one rig is three to five times higher than it was in 2014. Uh, It's remarkable, the increase in productivity of what you get out of one well, three to five times what it used to be. I mean, I I would argue that in many instances, some of the more prolific plays it's easily 10 times. So let's put this in perspective. I remember not more than 10 years ago that if you drilled a vertical well and you were able to produce 50 barrels a day, you were dancing. It was considered a good well. Today, if you drill a well and don't get 500 barrels a day, uh, it's considered to be kind of a marginal well. Right. That's right. It, well, it, it, I mean, there are some initial production, 30-day initial production rates that are over 1,000 barrels a well day. Well over 1,000. So, yeah, this is unheard of. And so, you know, that's one piece, more oil coming out of the holes. But I think the other big change has been the amount of one rig can drill. The speed of drilling has been yeah. another thing that's really increased the productivity and reduced the cost of these wells. In the last half dozen years, we've increased the average time it takes to drill a well, say, of depth 3,000 meters, okay, three kilometers uh, by 25%. That means you have gone from something like 12 days down to eight days. And because uh, well operators or rig operators, they charge by their days, yep. it's meant that these wells are cheaper to drill. So not only do they have more oil and gas coming out of them, but they're generally lower capital costs for the drilling part. There's completion costs as well, yeah. but it's really helped the economic equation. Well, you know, faster drilling times, and by the way, more consistent drilling times, We'll talk about that in another episode because it's really actually quite important. So faster drilling times, more consistent drilling times, and the productivity of these wells is anywhere from three, five, sometimes 10 times greater. So is it any surprise when you put it all together that we have seen such a surge in production from North America? Right. And but the interesting thing is, so a lot of times the innovation is focused on the light tidal and the shale gas, which we've talked about here in North America. But the downturn had another unintended impact, which is that the low prices and the competition from North America has actually created a lot of innovation in other types of oil developments. And so if you look offshore, it's kind of amazing what's going on. I'll cite the Shell Veto project, which is um, a project they have in the U.S. Gulf of Mexico. Prior to the downturn, you know, they expected this project would need at least $80 per barrel oil for them to make money building this project. 
And what they did is with the downturn, they recognized that wasn't going to happen. So they basically went and redesigned the whole project. And if you look at pictures that they put up, the new project is a shadow of its former self. It's just half the steel, way smaller project. They basically reduced the cost by 70%. And they believe that they could make money even with $35 oil price if they developed this project. No, it's stunning, the cost. (laughs) It's it's also, upon reflection, taking our minds back to circa 2014, the price of oil is starting to fall. Everybody in the industry is going white as a sheet. Oh my God, I can't make money. We need minimum $100 barrels, otherwise I can't drill. And uh, it didn't take long before the industry realized with these innovations that they could make money at progressively lower prices. The cost curve has come down to these staggering numbers. It started onshore and now it's migrating offshore. And, you know, we used to always get the question about light tide oil in North America and, you know, could it take off other places? Could there be a larger source of supply at the kind of prices you could develop light tide oil? And it was it's really not a relevant question to me anymore because actually there's been so much innovation, including in our Canadian oil sands, actually, yes. to bring that cost structure down that actually there's a lot of cheap oil out there uh, and a lot of oil that I think could be developed at relatively low prices. Yeah, very, very, very much so. And This also speaks to a change in mindset, modality, whatever you want to call it, where not only has the technology set improved, but the oil and gas industry is now adopting much more of a manufacturing mindset, right? You know, typically it was sort of like one well, one pad, boutique type operation, uh, somewhat analogous to a corner grocery store. Now we're in a manufacturing mindset, pad drilling, where you have... 14, 20, I don't know how many wells per pad where the rig goes along that piece of land like a sewing machine drilling holes in the ground. Right, they it's, get the economies of scale and not having to move the scale. equipment. And right. so you, you, you put it all together, you know, each individual well is more productive. You can drill it much faster. You can drill it like a sewing machine on a, uh, on a patch of land and you have multiples of productivity, which effectively mean the unit cost of production has gone down dramatically and is likely to continue to come down, which we'll talk about in a few minutes in our future. Okay, uh, so that's that's the past, but let's bring us yep. to the present. Because yep. one of the implications of all of this innovation and is the fact that we can bring on more supply at a lower price is we've seen a real change in the price structure for commodities. And so for natural gas, you know, 10 years ago before this all started, you know, the price would often spike over $10 per gigajoule or range between seven or eight. This is uh, US dollars per gigajoule in North America. Today, it's a rare day if it hits $3. And it's Canada, it's it's quite a bit lower than yeah, that. Uh, <laughs> producers could only dream of three dollars. I mean, what is it? The Canadian gas is coming out of the ground for free. Oh. Yeah, today ECO is actually close to that, but uh, it's a lot of volatility, and so we have much lower prices. And obviously, with oil, we had hundred dollar oil. The reason we got down to fifty, a big part of that was the fact that this surge of supply came on from the U.S. and oversupplied the market. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, there were some OPEC issues there as well, but fundamentally, it's about more supply than we have demand, and so. You know, we're seeing the price for every unit of energy that you bring out of the ground is not as valuable because of these technologies. Yeah, I mean, translating that back to cost, the cost curves are all going down. Technology is facilitating that. And so you are able to produce more joules of energy in whatever form, whatever hydrocarbon form, natural gas, oil, at half the price, as it was only half a dozen years ago, and five or six times the productivity. Let's also now look at the renewable side where we're seeing similar types of productivity gains. We're seeing a solar panel, square meter panel is twice as efficient, can produce twice as much electricity as before. Right. 
at half the cost in only five years. Wind also coming down. What, what are the numbers? Like 25? I think wind's down about 15%, 15 in the same. So it hasn't made quite the same years. inroads, but it's yeah. still pretty competitive because yeah. it started at a lower spot than solar. Right. And so we've got this deflationary trend. And you wrote about this, actually. There's a commentary, which we'll put in the show notes, that you wrote in August around deflating the energy scarcity mindset that, yeah. that you know, it's everything's going to get cheaper. And we've shifted from this mindset where energy would be scarce and get more expensive with time to this view that there's it's kind of like an infinite supply and it might continue to get cheaper over time. Ten years ago, we were in that era of peak oil. We're running out. It's coming scarce. It's We're going to the ends of the earth. It's getting costlier and costlier. Those costs are pushing up price. And ten years ago, renewables could not compete because they were way too expensive. In this short period of time, we have shifted from a mindset of scarcity and increasing costs to very quickly one of abundance and declining costs. It's, it's really quite remarkable. And so what we have now is the ability to bring a jewel of energy to market in whatever form, whether it's a solar electron, a wind electron, or natural gas molecule or whatever. The ability to bring a jewel of energy to market is deflating in cost. And this is like so profound in terms of thinking about strategy, it is. Uh, whether you're an oil and gas producer or a, a renewables power generator, you have to think about your future strategy in light of this deflationary trend. And your article was great. It talked about a lot of aspects in terms of how you have to think about competition, prioritization of profit over volume, implications to the greenhouse gas emissions sure. because of cheaper and cheaper energy. It means generally people use more. People use more. But I would, I did want to, on this podcast, just focus in on on one of the implications. I think we need to come back to these in, in future mm -hmm. podcasts, is the value add strategy that producers have to really start thinking about value add. Yeah, and particularly in North America and in Alberta, we do need to think about that value add component. Because if you wake up and realize that the whole paradigm has shifted from one to scarcity to abundance. In other words, one from rising costs and prices to one of falling costs and more stable prices. Say, look at natural gas, where we have almost an indefinite supply of natural gas below, what, two bucks? I think that in Canada, we could have a lot of gas, sustainable gas, maybe in the range of $2 Canadian. Yeah. And then at Henry Hub, for sure at $3. And I think that's coming okay. down. So... We can argue about two bucks, three bucks. It's cheap. And the mind shift shifting to stable, non-volatile prices for a long period of time means that as an input, you can start thinking about, well, what can I do with this stuff underneath my feet? And here in Alberta, if you think about it, it's not only underneath my feet. We have cheap natural gas. We certainly have lowering costs on oil production. We have uh, wind. We have sun. We've got it all. And so we have to start thinking about, well, what can we do with this stuff beyond just exporting it? We know we want to export and get value for it, and that's a whole separate issue. But it's a very advantageous situation to think that we have almost an unlimited supply of every primary energy source underneath our feet. And what can you do with that as a value add? Well, and the Americans, you know, have, have figured this out have. a little bit sooner. There's been a real renaissance in U.S. petrochemical. And basically the big advantage is that they have this cheap natural gas. That's a big input cost for petrochemicals. They also have a lot of the like propanes and ethanes and things that make it, you know, them able to take the outcome of all of this gas wells and turn it into value added products that they can sell. And we've also seen, you know, a big move in terms of U.S. refinery exports because U.S. refiners have a big advantage having cheap natural gas and, sure. and cheap oil. And so you've seen billions of investments in the U.S. 
We're also seeing natural gas pushing out coal in U.S. power generation. Now, this is starting to happen in Western Canada, and it should, because mm-hmm. we have even lower natural gas prices than the Americans. And we had about $1.54 Canadian per gigajoule last year. So you've got to be able to make some things work with a gas price that's pretty much less than half of what they've got at the Oh, yeah. Coast. I mean, is it any surprise? Uh, you know, value add does not necessarily need to mean petrochemicals and fertilizers and all that kind of stuff. It could... I mean, why do you think we have these giant cannabis greenhouses here is because the input cost to heat these things is cheap. Why do we see in Medicine Hat, which sits on a gas field, a Bitcoin server farm that uh, consumes as much electricity as the population of Medicine Hat? It's because the energy is cheap. I'm not necessarily excusing that, but I'm just saying that's what happens when you realize you have cheap input costs. And I think when you have that faith that the price will stay low for a long time, because a lot of times these investments in a big petrochemical facility, you know, they have to take a long-term view. And so there's, you know, this belief that prices will stay low here for a long time. Therefore, you have the confidence to start thinking about building these assets. And there's been some other examples just recently in terms of companies committing to projects here or at least talking about them. For instance, we had Pembina is evaluating a propane dehydration project, 35,000 barrels a day. We've also got Interpipeline Fund that's actually going forward with their propane dehydration Hmm. project. And so they're saying that's a $2 billion plant. It will convert 22,000 barrels a day of feedstock into petrochemicals. Now, they're taking advantage of the fact that we have more liquids because of the shale gas that we're producing, but also the cheap natural gas because they need the energy. So those are great examples of companies industries waking up to the fact that uh, it's not only actually cheaper than other jurisdictions in the world, energy input costs or commodity input costs. It's also the prospect that those costs are going to be stable, not volatile, because that is something, for example, that has plagued natural gas, certainly between the year 2000 and oh, about 2010-ish, is that you know it went from Two bucks to 14 bucks, down to eight bucks, six bucks, eight bucks. You know, I mean, it's just that kind of volatility is not something that a value adder wants to see. But if they can be convinced that you can have a long term, low, stable price, then all of a sudden you have a different value proposition. Right. You get that new investment. Now, the interesting thing is propane is, is interesting, but we don't have a ton of propane in the province. What we do have a lot of is cheap methane. And so natural gas, natural gas, that's like the building block, the first uh, CH4. And so Nautical just announced they're going to build a $2 billion project in Grand Prairie that will convert natural gas methane into methanol. And then that methanol will then be shipped to Asia. And so there's another example of, you know, the fact that we have low Mm. gases is hurting the natural gas producers because it's hard for them to kind of live in that low price world. But it's also creating new opportunities by, you know, plants like this being built. That's Grand Prairie. That's your hometown. That's right. There'll be a brand new industry here. Right. You're loading Um, up on real estate? (laughs) Not yet. (laughs) Not Not yet. yet. But it's interesting to note, though, the methanol coming back to Western Canada because here's the interesting factoid is that when I started following natural gas markets in earnest, it was the late 90s, early 2000s. And in that early 2000s, when the price of natural gas was going up because of scarcity, that the price of gas went up to a point where Methanex, which was a uh, methanol producer in Kitimat, said that, uh, okay, we can't withstand these uh, high natural gas input costs anymore. We're packing up this plant. They actually dismantled it and moved it, I think, to Chile in South America, where they had much cheaper natural gas prices. Right? It, it takes time for companies like uh, the the value adders, I'll call them, to make that fairly expensive decision to move an entire plant. 
but now they're coming back because they're realizing that the cheapest natural gas, ironically, 20 years later, not quite 20, 15, 15 years later, is here. But you know, the irony of the situation is, is that Methanex plant is where? It's, it's, it's That's the site that Shell is going to use in Kitimat for their very first LNG terminal that will be yeah, built off our yeah, West Coast. Yeah, so so. Uh, at least we had some brownfield development costs out of that is, one. Absolutely. I do want to mention there was an announcement, um, and this is still a very early stage project, that SinoCan Global, which is a partnership of Sinopec and an Alberta Indigenous group, hmm. say that they are considering building a 167,000 barrel a day refinery here and a petrochemical plant, which they estimate could be about an $8.5 billion project. Now, I'm always skeptical a little bit because these refining projects are very big projects. There's been many proposed before. We have mm-hmm, quite a few in mm-hmm, BC. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is hard sometimes to get them going because although we have cheap natural gas and cheap oil right now, you know, the diffs are probably, the oil prices are going to improve here in Canada over time. And natural gas is a relatively small input in the whole equation. So we'll see if this one happens, but it is just a sign that, you know, the the economics are here to have people even consider these types of projects. It's very positive, the value add to the commodities that we have underneath our feet, that uh, it's growing. We do need to put some of this in perspective because I, what did you call 167,000 barrels a day? That's that's good, but in the big scheme of things, like what are we producing? We're producing about four and a half million yeah, barrels a day four and a half million. of oil out of Western Canada, so it's fairly small in terms of changing the differentials for crude oil right now. But it's it a is start. a start. I mean, I think refining is a little more difficult because we don't have a lot of growth in our refined product demand here, and so, yeah. you know you've got to ship the products a long ways away. Yeah. But you wouldn't even be considering this project if we didn't have cheap natural gas and lower priced oil. Well, right it now. just means a diversification of the value chain, a little more integration, and uh, longer term steadier jobs. And I think it it just fills in. And then once you get the secondary value added industries moving in. And then you get the tertiary ones, right? So actually, I'm fairly bullish over the very long term in terms of uh, what this means, but we are in transition and uh, we've got some tough times in terms of the differentials and stuff, which we've talked about in the past. I'm sure we're going to talk about some more, but what about the future? The future. Okay. So, you know, we talked about this deflationary trend. We've done a lot uh, with the fracking technology and brought down the cost structure by redesigning these offshore platforms. But people say the next leg of technological innovation is coming and it's going to come this time from digital technology, that the oil and gas industry relative to other industries is behind in our use of digital technologies, and that we can make some major cost savings if we apply these very relatively mature technologies mm-hmm. uh, that other industries are using. So when you say major, what are we talking about? Like uh, 20, 30%? Well, you know what? I'm going to cut to an interview that I had with Jeffrey Can this week. And Jeffrey is an advisor to everything oil and gas, and uh, we'll have a link to his website. And we'll cut to that right now his perspective. The uh, answer isn't uniform for all companies. It it does depend on the nature of the assets that you have and uh, how efficient you might be in your uh, structure. If you've been done a lot of acquisitions and you haven't done an awful lot of um, integration of those assets, for instance, the opportunities are going to be uh, quite a bit greater. Uh, for, for, For those organizations that have a large portfolio of low productivity assets that drive a lot of services, the opportunity will be greater. Um, but um, for all oil and gas companies in the upstream sector, um, gains in the 30 to 40 percent range are not out of the question at all. On on opex. On opex. On opex. Oh, that's significant. It's pretty. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty good value. I mean, if you uh, there's a, a rule of thumb would be certainly something close to what we in oil and gas would think of as high value human work. As much as 80 percent of it is is susceptible to digital innovation or digital change. So we have to start to think differently about work so that we can start to see the way 
ways that digital can make an impact. On the CapEx side, the capital construction industry um, is one of the least digitally enabled industries, and anybody who's ever built a house uh, can see that as, as to how, how painfully slow it can be to get construction assets uh, uh, put into place. So um, the construction industry is, is even bigger opportunities there. Wow. Jeffrey you know, had some pretty big numbers, 30 to 40% type improvements in op costs and potentially capital costs wow, too. That, that's, uh, that's, you know, we've already come down at least that far, if not more, based on what we talked about earlier. So we've got even more to go. Like, it sounds to me like we're only in like, what, second inning in the baseball metaphor, third inning? Yeah, in fact, uh, I'd asked Jeffrey that in the interview as well. And he said, well, some companies aren't even in the game yet. <laughs> Many are in the first inning and the real leaders might might be in the third inning. But you know, it's exciting that we could see that kind of cost change, but it can be distressing too, because really, if if this is possible, oil and gas producers cannot afford not to get into the digital no, game. No. Because if the cost structure of the industry could go down and you're the higher cost guy, you know what happens to you. Well, we know what happens to you from other industries. I mean, this competitiveness on cost is something that the progressive segments of the energy industry is starting to acknowledge. But in other industries, it's just commonplace, uh, whether it's semiconductors or autos or what have you. It's just commonplace to know that you got to cut costs out of the system as much as possible. Well, and then you got to think about your competition, that we are competing against other energy providers. And sure. so that, you know, we've got to think about if these other industries are going to start to use this technology, their cost structures could go down too. Yeah. And so you really can't afford not to be in the game. I'll talk quickly about some of the sure. technologies. So, you know, we haven't got specific about them, but there's lots of use cases, but some examples of some of the uh, buzzwords that are thrown around is bots, which are basically tools that will automate processes that people do now. So basically, you could do things like reduce the hours associated with moving data around. How many processes inside of an oil and gas company are about taking data from this right. system, putting it in that system, filling out a regulatory form? Right. So I think there's a lot of potential there. So just automating mouse clicks, basically. You know. That's right. And, and anything that's rule-based, yeah. you know, we can actually just automate that instead of how mm -hmm. people do it. Mm -hmm. I think there's you know emerging still, but a big um, gain potential from artificial intelligence and machine learning. Yeah. Basically, using past data to predict future equipment failures or find oil and gas that human eyes have missed or optimize production. I think that's big. The issue with using artificial intelligence in oil and gas is just the sheer amount of data, both historical and also what they're gathering. So the data management side of that is uh, got to be sorted out before you can put the data into artificial intelligence algorithms, but it's coming. It's, well, it's, it's and, and we've talked to a lot of experts on this, and they do see this as sort of the, a harder one to go after, but also has the biggest potential, potential to uh, yeah. to provide returns. Of course, the big one, blockchain. blockchain. Yeah. Interestingly, I think Canada is a real leader in using blockchain in the mm -hmm. oil and gas industry. Uh, if you haven't looked into it, Guild One in Calgary settled the first royalty contract earlier this year. Yeah. I think there's more to come. I mean, there's a lot of hype around blockchain and so on, and uh, it's going to settle out, but there's definitely room for it. And there's a lot of interesting applications. And ultimately, opposed to making bots for automating mouse clicks, it just in, really the blockchain is introducing a completely new, fresh system of transactions that is much more efficient than uh, than what you're what you're used to doing in terms of uh, rubber stamping or mouse clicking or what have you. Right, and just basically we can do things a lot faster and more accurately yep. and not be bogged down for months in terms of who owes different parties mm -hmm. how much. So I think we'll talk about all these technologies in the future, but there's lots of exciting things going on. And it is exciting that the industry could have so much change still on this digital front that looks tangible. It looks possible. 
you know, you can kind of see how it how it would improve the processes of today. Yeah, it's more than looking. I mean, we, we have several examples of it is happening. So it's all good news. Well, I think uh, we're going to wrap up our story on uh, this episode on the cost past present and future. Now, a title that was made famous with the story of Ebenezer Scrooge, considering his past, present and future Christmas celebrations. But I think the learning here is if you're not on board with innovation and change in this industry, your future could look pretty scary. Yeah, you could have a a lump of coal in your stocking. So anyway, thanks very much for joining us. Yes, thanks for listening and goodbye until next time. For more ideas and insights, visit arcenergyinstitute.com.